Getting split. Getting split. Getting split. Getting split ready. For my wife, God rest her soul. Oh God, I'm so sorry. No, 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 she's not dead. <laughs> We're just divorced. Unscripted and honest discussions on divorce and separation. Getting split ready. What was I supposed to tell him? I divorced you from the show. Here's your hosts, Doug Katz and Mariah Pleasant. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Getting Split Ready. A great show tonight. Well, with us tonight, we've got Amy. Is it Schilling? I got I Schillinger. Schillinger. Yeah. I was going to do the soft G. I'm glad she corrected me. Uh, clinical director and president owner at Balanced Stress Management Therapy, a trained EMDR for trauma. I'm sure we'll be asking you what that acronym is. Uh, and also a mindfulness teacher who believes that health is a three pronged process, including mental, physical, and spiritual. Her specialties include relationship issues, depression, anxiety, trauma, addiction treatment and co-occurring disorders. She's a graduate of, and I'm going to get this wrong. I don't know French. you got to say it. What is it? Notre Dame de Namur University. Yep. I got it right? Mm-hmm. All right. With an MA in marriage and family therapy and art therapy, and from Altaverno College with a BA in art therapy. Also with us is Jessica Monquist, partner and owner of Greenwich Law Group. Practices include family law, child support, collaborative law, divorce, estate planning, guardian ad litem, mediation, and parental responsibilities and parenting time. Graduate of Forest Team Universities, Case Western Reserve School of Law, University of Edinburgh School of Law, University of Glasgow, Beloit College. Uh, no, that was it. Okay. Uh, and then I'm on the next page. Also with us, Pamela Rack, uh, LSCW and PC. General Mental Behavioral Health Counseling Practice uh, for Adults is what she's got with divorce coaching, collaborative divorce coaching, co-parenting education. There's more. i got to keep going. you got to go to her site to see all that. Graduate of Jane Addams College of Social Work and George Williams College. National Association of Social Workers, Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois, and Association of Family and Collaborative Courts. And we ended up with a bonus guest tonight. Bonus guest, Matt Wilhelmy, author of Taboo Business Questions, owner of Strategic Voyage, business consultants, divorced dad of two, and a podcaster. We'll be asking about that later. So, again, you're at Getting Split Ready. Today, we're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about a little bit about self-care. We're going to find out if money is the root of all evil when it comes to marriage and if that's what causes divorce. Uh, talk a little bit about this. I'm so excited about this conversation about alternative lifestyles and divorce uh, a little bit about social media and how to manage that when you're going through a divorce. And finally, pre-divorce consulting. So, split, Getting Split Ready is brought to you by C. Dick and Jane Get Divorced. The paperwork and stress of a divorce can be overwhelming. Don't let uh, divorce take over your life. Get organized. Take control with the C. Dick and Jane Get Divorced organizational kit. You're actually going to see one of these later in the show, which is so cool. Um, reference code SR2019 and you get 10% off when you order one. Go check out more information about it at C. Dick and Jane Get Divorced Exactly As It Sounds dot com. So let's jump in. Self help. What talk about self help? What is it? Yeah. So I think people's perception of self help is something like take a bubble bath, go for long walks, um, talk to a friend. I think that what people really miss with self-help is um, putting therapy into their normal routine. You know, people go to the gym, people eat nutritious foods, they may talk to family members and friends, um, but they they really miss that piece of therapy. So I went to 
graduate school in Northern California. And in California, it's just very common for people to be like, oh, my therapist saw my other therapist and my other therapist and my other therapist talked to my therapist, right? And I think in the Midwest, somehow we still think of it as a taboo subject. Um, so self-care includes all the things that normally people think that it includes, but it also includes maybe couples work, maybe post-divorce couples work. A lot of people have to do co-parenting together. Um, it, it takes a lot of individual work to make that life transition. Um, there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with a divorce. So working through a lot of that, working through even childhood issues that it may bring up, um, you know, it can be really triggering. Talk more about therapy. I think that that's yeah. a concept that not everyone is super familiar with, but right. really important because the relationship has changed. Right. You're not married anymore. You're not in the same dynamic that you were, but you still have kids mm -hmm. that hopefully you have a common goal for and both love very much. How does that kind of come into play? Right. I think in the mediation world, we think a lot about co-parenting. Um, I think on TV or in the media, you think about people just fighting and battling it out and having a really hard time with co-parenting. Um, in my opinion, it doesn't have to be that way. You're going to have these kids together forever for your whole life. And to figure out how to get along, how to best communicate, um, how to make all the other family members work because you're going to have to drop them off at the grandparents' house or their aunt's house or whatever. So, so we got, we got a lawyer here. What's your thought? I know we were talking in the green room about how much lawyers love therapists. Like, seriously, I'm not being facetious there. So talk a little bit about that because I think a client's self-care is like self-care for you guys, it sounds like. Yeah, a, um, a good divorce attorney, much easier. Many people use their attorney uh, to work through their issues with their spouse or their ex-spouse if you're dealing with post-decree issues. And we are extremely expensive therapists. We do not take Blue Cross Blue Shield. We do not take Edna. We do not have copay deductions. Um, we also find it very draining, quite truthfully, if you're using us as a therapist. And if you're draining your attorney as, by using them as a therapist, you are not going to be getting the best work from your attorney because that is not our job and I'm not going to say we start avoiding you but we are on the phone calls avoiding the topics we need to talk about because you're insisting upon talking about a topic you should really be discussing with someone who is a professional mm -hmm. and trained to do that of which we are not so couples therapy right you know you, you gave me some statistics and getting ready for you know for talking about this talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that because I think there's questions on and we're gonna do a deep dive in pre-divorce counseling later on, but right. talk a little bit about, you know, how that works. Is it, you know, what do you see? Does it save marriages? You know, how does mm -hmm. couples therapy work? I think it could save marriages. I think what happens most often is that people come in with 90% of their marriage um, underwater, and then they expect the therapist to save it. And I think if we thought of couples therapy as more of a preventative measure, like, okay, we know that we have this and this and this issue um, that we need to work on. Um, and came in a lot earlier, I think that marriages could be saved. Uh, oftentimes, though, that's not the case. What, what do you think? What do you see in your practice? You know what? In my practice, uh, the, the current research I was looking up just before I, I came today is that up to 75% of marriages have the potential to turn around with the kinds of therapies that we do. And when you think about 
that statistic, yes, of course, half of marriages end in divorce. But if we look at what is what is it that we can do to prevent, to get people to really understand the emotional pieces, the needs, the strategies, the tools of working with their spouse, then we can move, even if there is a divorce, we can move toward, hopefully, ideally, collaborative uh, divorce. And if not, that when couples learn how to manage themselves, that self-care piece that you spoke about, really understanding their needs, what their motivations are, what their tendencies, what their toxic patterns are, then what we're looking at is the, the capacity of those people to bring their toxic dysfunction into the divorce process. And that's destructive, and that's where I, I truly believe that the role confusion about wh who they're paying to do what part of this is really detrimental to them. So you're saying people aren't their best versions of themselves in divorce? <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, no, but, no, but I, I would rather, quite frankly, misbehave because then I can see what it is that they do, yeah. and we can go ahead and implement some techniques to go ahead and begin to turn that around. I wanted to go back to something that you had said earlier, Amy, in changing the conversation. I know that it's not seen as a preventative. Um, and my husband and I actually went to therapy years ago when we got hit with a bunch of family stuff and we knew the stress was coming. Right. Before things started to fragment, we went to make sure that we were fully strong and intact. And I don't think enough people think of it that way. You know, if you go to the doctor and you get high blood pressure, you're not going to go home and kind of put your head in the sand until something else comes along, right? You're going to treat as you go. Why don't you think people do that more with marriages? Why is that stigma still there? I think it's because of the shame, um, mostly. They don't want their friends to know. They don't want their family to know. They don't want anyone to know that they're struggling, certainly not their neighbors or their neighborhood. Well, I just told everyone. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Renee Brown talks a lot about shame, but it, it really is that, just like that deep core shame. And then, you know, familiar familial patterns, too. Like if your parents didn't go to therapy, if your parents didn't believe in therapy, you know, there's a lot of like pick yourself up from the bootstraps mentality that goes on um so yeah i would really love to change the conversation my practice is really holistic and integrative um because we really do believe that it that it is something um, that needs to be in everybody's regular routine do you think the different terminology is helping at all relationship coaches Absolutely. or taking the word therapy off the table especially for men yeah. maybe yeah absolutely a lot of the times in my practice i'll talk about family work or um, you know, child, um, I'm a child specialist or I'm a divorce. Um, even though I am a certified therapist because I do think it, it is less scary. Um, I mean, I'm a trauma therapist too. We talked about EMDR in the introduction. Yeah, what, what, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which basically means that, um, your memories are stored on both the right and left hemisphere of your brain to fully access those memories. We have to stimulate both the right and left hemispheres of somebody's brain. Um, and we do that with this process called bilateral stimulation. What happens is somebody will come in and they'll say, oh my gosh, this thing happened to me. And I'll ask them a series of questions. Um, what is the picture of the worst part of that memory? What emotions are attached to that? What do you feel in your body? Because everybody has body memory. That might be like, I feel sick to my stomach. My, um, I feel really tight. I feel lightheaded. And then what do you believe about yourself at that time? So at the time of 
trauma or something that happened to you, I don't even like the word trauma, um, you know, people have a, neg a negative cognition that's probably not true. So it might be like, I'm going to die, or I'm worthless, or I'm unlovable. And we bring all this stuff up, we turn on the bilateral stimulation, now I have these little sensors you hold in your right and your left hand, and people are able to have this rapid memory recall. So they'll start with this one incident, then it'll jump to this other thing that happened to them when they're five, and then it might jump to this other thing yesterday. And what happens is I like to think about things that happened to us, not trauma, like rocks being stacked up on top of each other. Normal talk therapy might take one rock off at a time and people feel like they worked on it. With EMDR, we take a full set of rocks off at one time and then people have this, what I like to call lightning effect, which means you just, you've brought up all this old stuff, you've processed it, and then you just feel lighter. So there's an immediate effect. You know, I, I have to throw the joke with the rocks off. I said, everybody likes to get their rocks off. So yeah, everybody likes to get their Come on. Sure. That was teed up yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk a little bit. Speaking of that, talk a little bit about the physical uh, aspect. I know we're kind of talking right now about the cognitive right. aspect of therapy, but yeah. talk a little bit about what you recommend. You know, you're saying it's in your body. It is in your body. So how do you help people through that? You encourage them to find activities to move it out of their body. There is a whole um, realm of therapy called sensory motor psychotherapy, but that really is kind of this body work. Or I work really closely with a chiropractor, mm -hmm. um, chiropractic company um, in West Dundee, and they send me actually fibromyalgia patients really? because we talk about how fibro is completely connected to trauma. So, great conversation. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, mm -hmm. what's the best way to do it if they, if, if they need help? Yeah, so they can visit our website at www.balancestresstx, as in Tom, X as in xylophone, balancestresstx.com. The phone number is 847-450-0524. And we'll try and have that on when we release the different segments of the podcast. Sure. We'll have it there. So, if anyone wants to know where that is, go check out wherever you get your podcast and we'll be there great again you're listening to getting split ready sponsored by divorce uh, i'm sorry the divorce pro network i gotta wear reading glasses finding the right pro when you're building your team in a divorce is extremely important bad choices can cost you time and money the split ready divorce pro network has the professionals that you need whether a mortgage or a financial advisory or accounting, Split Ready Divorce Pros meet the rigorous standards and vetting meant to give you peace of mind. Questions? Go to splitready.com and select Build Your Team from the menu. Our next topic is uh, money, which never plays into any divorce scenario, I know. Um, not the lead up or the process. Um, but there was an article in Forbes recently that kind of said money is the root of all divorce. Anybody want to jump in with some thoughts on that off the top of your head? Uh, this is Jessica. I, I actually both agree and wholeheartedly disagree with that statement. Um, how we, from what I see in my, um, sorry, from what I see in my practice, um, both in the mediation and the post-decree and the dissolution and the collaborative, is money is representative of other issues. If you have control issues, money comes into play. If you have uh, gender stereotypes, money comes into play. If you have a lack of respect for a partner or spouse, money comes into play. If you feel someone is not pulling their weight, 
money comes into play. So from the point of view of a divorce attorney, or, or at least myself, I often see money as the sort of manifestation of the underlying issues. Interesting. What about from the therapy side when couples are pre-divorce? Um, how does money, does money usually come up as a main factor, a contributing factor, or is it usually more symptomatic of other things, as Jessica said? So what, uh, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said about it really is a, a bit of a red herring when we talk about the money as being the, the cause of things. It, in my practice and my experience has been that People make choices all through their lives. They make choices when they're married about where the money goes, what, they're, what they choose to, to uh, use as their representing their values and their priorities and their interests. And when it is that a divorce is on the table, then the, the money becomes an issue because people do adopt a certain style of living or they do adopt certain emotions that are around what that money represents. So um, I, I agree that it's it, it can be a root of evil because that is usually the bargaining chip that people use when it comes down to it because they really don't have anything else. You don't have the relationship. You don't have the affection. You don't have the belonging. You don't have the community because who you brought to the marriage is who you get when you leave. So it's uh, it really is a way to, to bargain literally with... Uh, with what it is that you care about from from a therapy perspective do you when it's money when money's the main issue is there you know regardless of personality i mean some stuff can play in that are x factors but when money is the main issue is it a more salvageable marriage there i don't i i don't know that uh, there there is nothing that i'm acquainted with that suggests that money would fulfill that what i and what the collaborative law folks know is that the money becomes a, a piece of whether or not a person is ready to pull the trigger on a divorce. So it really weighs heavily on the contemplation stage of a divorce or, or a split in the relationship. But money, it really does have more emotional factors like dependency issues. Okay. Than, I meant more there's, like there's so you got to spend or you got to save her, right? And and, yeah. they're, and they're going at it, and they yeah. might be getting divorced for that. But that seems like fixable behavior. Like, if 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 they try it, or is it something where it's like it's so ingrained in their personality that you can't do anything with it? In my opinion, it's like anything else. You have a choice, right? You have a, you have a choice to go to therapy to fix whatever it is that that you want to fix. And um, oftentimes, because it becomes a, such a a pattern of behavior for a long period of time, people just choose not to fix it. So. I think it's also sort of, I think it would also be important to kind of look at, you can look at some famous divorces or famous people right now who have uh, extreme amounts of money, right? Mm -hmm. So you have um, the Bezoses who were able to get, who runs Amazon, um, were able to get divorced in a relatively short period of time in the midst of an affair mm -hmm. with uh, without really seeming to have any money issues. Um, you also have you know, people like uh, the Gates, right? They have a ton of money and they're still married. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that you can really say it. it's money. And I, w I would even say with the spender and the saver, mm -hmm. it is a pattern, right? It's, it's, it's a pattern of behavior. And that pattern of behavior was probably set based on a bunch of other factors that happened, you know,
So if the man, I'll do a little gender reversal here, if the man stayed home so that the woman could go ahead and further her career, and then it's like, okay, I, I did this piece of it, so now it's my turn, that, that really becomes a dangerous leveraging piece when it comes to the have and have nots and how do we proceed with this as money is an issue. I'm not a therapist or psychologist, but I think on the financial side, I think people's behaviors when it comes to money and the family dynamic when it comes to money are some of the most deeply ingrained like concepts that they have in terms of who provides and who, you know, spends and is, you know, it's so funny to see different comfort levels for people. There are people who, if they have a hundred dollars in their account, they're flush. And there are people who, if they have a hundred thousand dollars in their account, that's their nervous like center. Like it's very different for each person. But I think they start really young with these, these feelings towards money. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a lot to do with uh, multi generational money or socioeconomic status or how their their families of origin handled it. And then um, you know, I don't think it's talked about enough in that premarital phase. Uh, I think that people just kind of fall in love and get married and they expect the money thing to work. So years ago when I worked in banking, I would have couples come in holding hands, swinging. We want to open a joint banking account. We just got married. And it's like, okay, (laughs) have you thought about this? What does this look like? Who's contributing? Are you both contributing? Who's paying the bills? Who's spending? And it's a, it's, it's not talked about enough. How like the, the process of it is not taught, which is, pretty much what split ready is this process but mm-hmm. how do we combine two households especially as people are getting married older when they've got a career when they've got an income when they have assets or second marriages when they've got complicated assets how do we combine that i think that's an interesting well and i was going to ask you know it's funny people always ask me about the whole divorcing like how can you be in the divorce business and and we've talked about sometimes part of being split ready is being knowing that you need to split what advice, like if someone's out there thinking about divorce right now, but it's salvageable, what are some, thinking from a financial perspective, and, and, and you're probably great input on this as well, what can they do to potentially head off at the past a divorce that need not happen? Meet with a financial advisor or therapy. therapy. <laughs> <laughs> or both. So the therapist is the financial advisor. The cost effective. I think um, you just brought up is really interesting. So if somebody's considering getting a divorce and money's a big part of the reason why, um, you almost want to look at the priorities of each person's um, financial priorities or time priorities. So um, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs are um, that I work with are divorced um, because their partner and, and them, they just didn't see eye to eye and they had a different priority. Um, and I think a lot of that then turns into a priority about the money piece of it as well. And so um, to answer your question, if somebody's considering a divorce and, um, you know, money's a piece of that equation, um, if they own a business, they need to, they need to find out, um, you know, from a financial advisor or from a business coach, you know, some of the legality behind that as well. If it's a marital asset, if it's going to get split up, what's it worth? There's a lot that goes into it when you're owning a business, but um, the money part of it um, tends to be, at least from my opinion, a misalignment of priorities. I'd like to add that while we're talking about money and, and wealth and, and people who don't have wealth, there, the rise of addictions, uh, gambling addictions, uh, uh, drug okay. addiction, when we're, when we're talking about money, sometimes the divorce is the driver 
to stop the bleeding, if you will, of the addiction because the sure. addiction is really whatever resources they have, it's really blowing through those. So I, that's a piece that I always think about too, not just assets and debt, but also what what is that other underlying piece emotionally and psychologically and behaviorally that's going on that is really ruining, financially ruining the next generations of that family. Right. Sometimes it's, it's turning off the tap. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great conversation. You know, I think I'm walking away with a feeling that it's financial stress when you're talking about money maybe being the issue, but just money in and of itself doesn't sound like, you know, a, a root cause. So um, great input. Um, well, on the flip side of split ready would be marriage ready. Have these conversations absolutely. beforehand. Know what your partner's credit score is or what their student <laughs> loan debt is yes. before you tie the knot um, and make sure that you're educated in that realm as well. Right on. All right, you are listening to Getting Split Ready. Our sponsor for the segment is Divorce Credit Pro. A divorce can place an enormous strain on your credit. Talking about money. A bad credit score can translate to thousands of dollars in extra costs for mortgages, car loans, and credit cards. And in some cases, a very low credit score will prevent you from obtaining financial financing at all. Um, generally, a person's credit score is directly related to where they are in life. Significant milestones in life, like purchasing a home, starting a family, and even divorce, tend to stress finances and impact your score. If you are struggling with a poor or damaged credit, let Divorce Credit Pro help you repair your credit and be ready to take the next steps for a fresh start. Divorce Credit Pro is a member of the Split Ready Divorce Pro Network and the premier place to find the professionals for your Split Ready team. Check out Divorce Credit Pro and the other Divorce Pros at SplitReady.com. Click on the Build Your Team tab. And I will let you introduce our next oh, guest, Doug, because I know you really no, want to. You know to. what? what, what <laughs> there, there, when you were talking about couples coming into the bank swinging, I was like, <laughs> that was bad timing because it was Hands a great segue. swinging. So I, I sat in on a meeting with the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois, uh, North, what was it? It was a loop group. It was a loop group. And you did a great talk about the impact of alternative lifestyles on divorce and what can happen with that. And I was just like, this got to be on the show. We cannot have our entire first season pass without that. But it was interesting because there was a distinction between gender identification and and sexual orientation and what you were talking about so start out with that because that was fascinating right so the, the presentation you're talking about we, we spoke about both gender non-normative individuals um, which could be transgender uh, individuals or um, a gender individuals uh, a whole a whole category which um, I don't really want to discuss right now as that's because, another show right we're that's a, that's to a totally like different show um, but the second aspect of it is sort of alternative lifestyle relationships um, the alternative lifestyle umbrella is huge and some people would even consider something like veganism an alternative lifestyle so uh, this is when it, it, it it's true right so um, our, our resident it, millennial is giggling uh, over <laughs> right? so when it comes to alternative lifestyle relationships there are three sort of main big piles, so to speak. Um, polyamory, which is an intimate relationship with more than one partner. It is consensual. It is an ethical relationship and it's responsible non-monogamy. So you are not just with one person. You are in a committed relationship with multiple people. Everyone knows what's fully going transparent. on. Fully transparent, fully consensual. That's that group. So that, a lot of that's, love going on. There's a lot of love going on. Um, but there's also a lot of respect right. and a right. lot of communication and transparency to make that work. 
Um, second large sort of pale would be swinging. So that would be uh, singles and people in committed relationships um, that do engage in sexual behavior or sexual type behavior um, with others. Uh, this is, again, consensual. It happens with the permission of the other person, and consent is required to have this be an actual alternative lifestyle. Um, and then you have BDSM. Um, so BDSM sort of came to most people's knowledge uh, with the uh, gray books. Um, so that would tend to be uh, bondage, domination, discipline, submission, and sadomasochism. Um, so those are sort of the three main piles or, or pales. Um, how they affect divorce really depends on the relationship between the parties and where it is when it gets to the point of divorce, should it ever actually affect the, the divorce. And when I say divorce, I, I really should put that with the breakdown of a relationship. So if you are in a polyamory relationship, uh, you may be married to one person and in a committed relationship with one or more other people. Uh, there may be children that are biological children of one set, of um, the couple and not of the other, but the other may actually be uh, the primary parent for those children. Um, can I stop? Because how does yeah. that work? Only one person can be married to the other person, right? So then if you've got this polyamorous relationship, and what if one of the non-married parts of the, the tribe or however it would yeah. work? Well, that would, 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 would. We get a flow no, chart? I, I'm trying to, well, I don't even know. Well, Venn like, diagram. Rela just re relationship. The relationship. relationship so family. the person who yeah. is the non-marital person in the relationship, if they want to break off, they're, they can't even, can they go through the court system? Well, first stating, just because you're in a polyamory relationship doesn't mean you have any marriage. Right? Okay. So you, you don't have to be married to be in a polyamory relationship sure. for anybody. But um, one of the things that you end up doing as an attorney who works in divorces is also paternity work. So the divorce uh, or breakdown of a couple, of a married couple, really isn't that different than the breakdown of a non um, a, a non married couple. So what would typically be a paternity case in the court system. Um, where it really becomes different are the rights people have. So in the situation where you're talking about a non-biological parent figure in a family, um, that non-biological... Said much more eloquently than I did. I <laughs> well, That's why we have to, you on the show. To be fair, I mean, this is an area where if you say the wrong thing, people no, get totally. very upset, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So if you have a um, non-biological parental figure uh, in our court system at this time, you really have absolutely no rights. That was kind of my question. You, is then... you really don't. You you are no different than, say, Doug, you would be to me, right? So um, you are your a... favorite podcast host. There you go. There you go. Um, but, you know, you really don't have a right so to speak, to the children, uh, biological p children, uh, adopted children. That is the relationship. That is the uh, legally protected relationship in our court system as it is. So if you're getting divorced, if you go through a traditional um, breakdown um, through, like, through the court system, right, through litigation, through paternity court or through the marital courts, um, you the only relationship that is protected is that of the married couple or of the biologically bonded wow. couple. So uh, alternative ways of dissolving relationships like mediation and like collaborative work, um, that is where you need and you should go. And you can do collaborative cases and you can do mediated cases with large family structures. Um, it's like the UN. It, it, it is, but you know, it is the safest and best way 
to handle a dissolution of a relationship in that situation. If you have someone who is leaving the polyamory lifestyle, or you have someone who is willing to use, um, here we're saying polyamory, but it could be a swinging history, it could be a BDSM um, a history against the other party in the court system or through social means or through public humiliation. And, and, and make no mistake, mm -hmm. you are still able to do that. Um, even if you are in your bubble where everyone is, is like you, if you have someone leave your bubble, they will work if they want to, 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 to use your, and we're doing um, you know, on social media choices, later on to and use your alternative their, lifestyle yeah. against you if they yeah. so choose and they can. And unfortunately it really does work in the court system still. Um, but a lot of these legal questions probably are very similar to what same sex couples uh, had to endure before they were able to legally get married or if they're not in some states. It is, it's one of the analogies I use when doing estate planning for um, couples who do not have a traditional relationship. So the same estate planning that we would do for a same-sex couple pre the ability to get married is the exact same thing. It was modifications, right? But pretty darn close to the exact same thing we can do to protect an intact or uh, intact alternative lifestyle family or, and, and right, I'm more speaking more of the polyamory right now, but um, as they move forward, th that's what we can do. I've got a question, and, and this might bring our, our therapist in too. You talked a little bit about BDSM, and to my knowledge, there's a, a submissive and, uh, I don't know what the other dominant. 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 I could, the D. I, <laughs> dominant submissive. Now, that could, I would think, get tricky once it moves to divorce, because you've got these personality traits, and even if they want to work together, are those personality traits, does that sometimes impact it? Because the submissive person is going to be submissive, and the dominant person is going to be dominant, or doesn't that bleed over? Is it mostly in a different just in context? The bedroom? Yeah, in a context. I, I think as, as a good mediator or therapist, you can still figure out how to pull out the needs and the wants and the desires of each party. I think that even if you are the submissive in the relationship, there are still going to be in in the divorce um, those needs and wants and desires. And I mean, they do need somebody to facilitate, you know, figuring out what that is. And I would say just because they're engaged in uh, BDSM lifestyle in their sexuality, most relationships, there is an ebb and flow of power. Sometimes there's a greater differential than others, but it doesn't necessarily translate into the bedroom, but there's usually someone who comes from a position of power and someone else who has some catching up to do in the mediation. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I do think not to correct you, but no, um, please correct me. <laughs> excuse me. Everyone else um, does. It, it is a very common misconception that there's always a submissive person and that there's always a dominant person in a BDSM relationship, right? Remember it's bondage, domination, discipline, submission, and sadomasochism. And some of those are more sexual in orientation than they would be in day-to-day um, -day life. day -day lifestyle, right? The, the alternative lifestyle relationship of a BDSM, a couple or individual, is, uh, is one aspect of their relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not their whole relationship. I guess I have a question on, one, one would think, and again, this is, you know, I'm thinking not knowing enough about that subculture is, I would think that sometimes if swinging went bad or the polyamory relationship went bad, that that could be a cause for a divorce. How often 
Is that the catalyst for people getting divorced, or do you see it other things? I have actually not seen that in my practice. Interesting. Um, I. They're happier than everybody else. <laughs> I have, not seen, I have not seen that as the primary cause of the breakdown of the relationship. I have uh, experienced people being threatened with past behavior for their, for their alternative lifestyle So it lifestyle comes into play choices. when the divorce is going on, right. not prior to. And I have a, a limited scope. I, I don't, uh, that's not an area of expertise in my practice. I do understand, in my limited understanding, that there are rules and and um, not regulations per se, but there there is an understanding among these couples about how far a relationship goes, what what is and is not okay, and the experiences, the the, the few experiences that I've had with couples who are divorcing because of something that went awry in that lifestyle is because there became an emotional connection to one or the other parties. And again, I my limited understanding, however, it can't be emotional unless both parties agree. So it, it seemed that there were some relational, uh, I don't even know what you call it. Uh, boundary overstepping. Yeah, but boundary yes, overstepping. overstepping, yes. But to Amy's point too, and I think in the context of what we're talking about, one of my very first mediations on my own was uh, a couple that had uh, polyamorous relationships. And so, I was thrown into it very green and very quickly and it's relevant but it's not necessarily what's the necessary information for how do we move forward from this how do we protect ourselves what do we need how do we protect the kids you know it it's as relevant probably as what anyone does in their bedroom which isn't always super relevant to the proceedings right right unless the legalities come into play which was my next question well i just want to say one thing if you don't mind the it is really important to understand that the alternative lifestyle relationships, they are so strongly centered on transparency mm-hmm. and consent and um, permission mm-hmm. that their relationships, as a general rule from my experience, the boundaries and the clarity that they have in their behaviors and what is allowed and what is not allowed and their relationship is so strong that it can actually make it a bit easier to deal with the couple and whomever may be leaving the couple or if that's the situation. It, it just, there is so much communication that, you know, even sometimes attorneys, I, I don't need to know that, right? Yeah. It's, it's not really applicable to getting married, but you can see just how much communication and consent and transparency. That's going to be my question yeah. is how open are people at, you know, in, in therapy as well, mm-hmm. talking about that. Is there, you know, Again, it's it's a alternative lifestyle, so perceived differently. Or do people are people open about that when when you deal with them? Absolutely. I mean, I think sex is a, a natural function in humans, and if you are um, going to your therapist and, and not talking about it, that's probably a problem, right? Because it's something we all do, or maybe we'll not do. Run. Is or... sex the root of all divorce? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, Next time. Yeah, yeah. Talk to your therapist about your sex life. It's important. So. And, and talk to your attorney about what you have done and what you're doing, right? right? It's I have been surprised at the bench, and there is nothing worse for any attorney than being surprised at the bench. Being surprised at the bench with someone's sexual behavior or alternative lifestyle relationships in front of a judge, in front of a courtroom of people, that is not the place 
please be as open with your attorney if you are having a breakdown of an alternative relationship as you would be and should be with your therapist. Yes. One quick question. Um, paternity. Yes. In swinging relationships has got to be even more complicated, correct? Because. So it's, it's, it's been a while since I've dealt with um, a swinging case. Um, okay. it, it's not coming through the doors as much, or at least in my office, it's not. Um, but. It's my understanding from you know, speaking to people and, and um, that when, when a couple is choosing or an individual is choosing to engage in the swinging lifestyle, um, if there is any chance that they may be looking to have children or they may be hoping to get pregnant or there's the ability to get pregnant, such as you're not using birth control or you're off birth control, um, most people do not swing. And... Uh, to not um, provide birth control protection or to be using birth control protection in the swinging community while engaging in the swinging community is a big no-no. Um, you know, I, I think paternity is probably more of an issue. You know, when I get a paternity case and, you know, a couple has, you know, maybe dated casually and, gotcha. and someone, you know, whoops. Right. So, um, you know, again, there's so much transparency and so much discussion in most of these relationships that and, and there are rules within the communities and within the sub communities of the community you're in. I, I, I don't I, I have never personally heard that as a as an issue unless swung as a as a weapon. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, that almost too much for one segment and we will be doing something at a later point. No, it's awesome. Always leave them wanting more. Um and we'll probably be doing a segment later on gender identification and and non non binary non normative gender individuals. Non normative gender. You're gonna have to work on your vocabulary. I am. I am. <laughs> That's why I'm in Oak Park. I should know all those. <laughs> um, and again, you're listening to Getting Split Ready, sponsored by. See uh, Dick and Jane get divorced. We mentioned this earlier. Uh, the paperwork and the stress of divorce can be overwhelming. Uh, I actually was looking at the kit earlier today, and it's awesome. it's awesome. It's got calendars and file folders and stickers, and it helps you figure out how to organize this massive information that can be very intimidating for people when they're starting this process. Um, I know some people are more electronic, uh, but a lot of us like paper. I still like paper. I like to have my list where I check stuff off. I like to, yeah, you know. I, like. yeah, I know you like paper. <laughs> um, so go to the website, see Dick and Jane get divorced. Uh, use our reference code of SR2019 for 10% off and help yourself get organized as you go through this process. I think it's important. Yeah, maybe we can try and put some like video or pictures. We'll put them on our site so we you can will. see what the box looks like. We will. We'll pretend to use it because uh, our resident millennial was having fun with the stickers yes. earlier as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were keeping her busy. Our next subject is going through a divorce on social media. Um, which, which actually is kind of cool because when we were talking about using things against people, man, yeah. social media big weapon i went to the back to school night uh, for the junior high recently and the social workers that were there were talking about how that's the bulk of their day and the bulk of their issues is dealing with social media and you know preteens. i can't imagine that it gets any easier when you're going through a divorce um how to handle social media and what to do yeah i think that what social media has done to people in general where it 
if, if it's preteens or adults going through a divorce, is that um, whatever is posted just can follow you. You can't you can't leave it right. Before we had, um, especially I work with adolescents too. You know, adolescents and bullying and social media is a huge huge problem right now. There are many adolescents, unfortunately, that are um, committing suicide because of social media. And so I think that um, really teaching people boundaries of social media is super duper important. Um, you know, what you should and shouldn't post. Um, obviously, there are, there's a great difference in what people are comfortable um, in their private lives. Um, and just educating, you know, people that we work with or friends or family or clients, like, you know, it's, it's going to follow you. So even if you are in the, in the midst of um, a divorce, you, you should really be careful what you, what you put out there into the world. I had a acquaintance post something a few years ago, and it was, um, I forget the name, but, you know, Bob and I are getting divorced. I'm fine. He's fine. We're fine. And we'll talk about it when we're ready. I was like, well, that sums it up pretty That's quick. Awesome. That's good. That lets you, everyone right. know and puts some boundaries out of it. And that was one way to handle it other than just, I think you change your status or whatnot. And then everyone has a million questions. And that can often be used yeah. for dramatics as well, I think. From a, from a legal perspective, do you give your clients guidance? Because I would think if they do one thing or the other, it could hurt if it goes to litigation. Depending on what they post. It is probably something I should do with absolutely everyone. It you is, monitor, do you get on their accounts so you can monitor right. it? No, no. Um, it is probably something I should tell every client, and I will ultimately tell every client, but I don't think either, I don't think I tell them soon enough, and I don't think most attorneys tell them soon enough. Um, they also come to us usually having already posted quite a bit, mm. and they come with their posting habits. Um, and as Amy was saying, people have different, um, you know, sort of comfort levels. And you might have one spouse who overshares absolutely everything and involves the children. And you might have one spouse that doesn't even have a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And um, as I said, it is out there and it is forever. And, you know, the biggest bulk of any child-related litigation will involve a lot of paper when it comes to text messages and mm -hmm. social media of all sorts. And um, it is just, just, just be quiet. Well, sometimes <laughs> I, just, I just, see just like the opposite quiet. where you, 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 you can kind of backdate and figure out if someone got divorced, like when they were going through the divorce and you look at their social media and you would think that they were two week newlyweds and I think there's some oh, yeah, the aspect opposite. of that where yeah. there's the overcompensation and then later you're like oh that's why that was that way yeah so what do, what do you see from the ther therapy perspective you know there there are a couple things that I require of people who work with me and they I, I tell them that up front and they sign a, a document that they agree to it and one is that I I ask them and this is about the mindfulness piece that you mentioned which is a great topic as well is that to, to think about what is it that you want to be able to say about your behavior when this is done? What, what yeah. is it that, you know, what, what is your positive intention about when it is that, you know, that proverbial hospice talks a lot about when you're on your deathbed, what is it you want to say about your life? I pose the question to them and I challenge them with when it is that you finalize your divorce, what is it that you want to be able to say about how you handled yourself 
how it is that you protected your children in the process of exposing whatever it is that are your grievances or gripes or challenges or wounds that occurred along the course of your relationship. And the other piece, I so I, I ask them to truly stay off of social media. The other piece is I and um, was trained specifically in developmental immaturity. It, the, the code word for that is codependence, which nobody likes to say anymore because nobody likes to be called that, um, <laughs> even though we all are <laughs> to some degree. So when we look at developmental maturity and immaturity, the acting out of that emotional angst or retaliation or wound is really about how old are you in that moment when you're doing that. So at my age, my age is I, I am responsible for staying as old as I am all day long my level of maturity that ought to match my chronology. What people on social media don't understand is that they're really acting out like an adolescent. Mm -hmm. They're not their true maturational age when they're doing stuff like that. So, so between the what is it that you want to say about yourself at the end of this, because there is that timeline of behavior, and then what is it that you, what developmentally can you do to grow yourself back up? What is it that the EMDR piece can offer? What is it that the codependence work, the, the, um, the pieces of you becoming more out of this experience than becoming so compromised? I, can I ask a question? Go ahead. My question, if it was used, if it was weaponized, and, I mean, if, if someone was going to physically harm you, the courts could do something. If somebody was using social media to threaten, to bully, to um, affect someone's reputation, can the court force somebody to not be able to use it if they're the, the one who is doing the bad stuff? Absolutely. Um, someone can be enjoined from posting. Someone can be enjoined from contacting people. Someone can be enjoined from... Yeah, reaching out via text. Um, so it, it can happen. Unfortunately, it does. It has the bad act has to happen, um, absent an agreement to make it, uh, so that a court will will allow an injunction. You do have to go into court, and it, it does have to be bad enough. Uh, you can get an agreed order um, if someone breaks the injunction. Um, you know, depending on where you are, what it is, what's going to happen. Um, you know, you, you never want you never want the client who's doing that and you never want the client who's having that happen to them. Because there's just so very little you can do and it does live it's like being a parent. on. I mean, right now as a parent, yeah. social media's got awful. It's horrible. It's, well it's, and you, you know, know what? You're, we're talking about two things too. We're talking about the overt, which is those intentional, damaging, disparaging remarks and inferences and assumptions and and uh, behaviors that are described. And then there's the covert, which is the person, one person has moved on and the other, the spouse uh, has not quite caught up to we're getting a divorce. And so the other person is sharing their life. And while that is not intentionally malicious, it really is in poor taste. And those are selfish. the, yeah, it is. So those are the, the pieces where there's, there's a bit of a dance that has to be done about where is the violence, the intent to harm that might be manifest in those, in those uh, 
mediums. Well, I think social media is also even damaging dating relationships right mm -hmm. now, right? I mean, there's this thing called phishing that's going on, right? So let's say that you've broken up, you've been broken up for a long period of time, and then your ex starts liking your pictures again. And that just brings something up in someone, yeah. you know? You've, you've broken up with this person, you're, you're done, you're done. And it just kind of keeps this cycle going, this cycle of contact. And um, it's really messing up everybody's dating life, too. Yeah. It, it, it is. I, I, I don't, I, I, as I said, I don't do what you do and say stay off social media. I probably should. They wouldn't follow my direction anyways. I put my mommy face on, and, and that, right? that takes pretty much care well, of it. But people have a life, right? You know, yeah. I, I have a lot of work colleagues on Facebook. I, you know, have uh, parent groups on Facebook. I, I, I can't really get off Facebook um, as much as one may try. It's what I do end up telling clients when things do get a little rough, I would say, is imagine your children reading this 10 years from now. How are you going to look to your children when your children read this 10 years from now and you are trying to teach them to be X kind of adult and you were sitting there being nothing less than Z? So, yeah. you know, think think about that. And if not hurting their ex-spouse or their ex-partner doesn't really affect them, sometimes bringing children in sort of um, strategically can. Yes, yes. Sort of backhanded, yeah. but, it, but it can work. And in those cases where the, 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 the fishing, for example, has occurred, those body experiences, that mm -hmm. body memory that comes up, that triggers and then creates all kinds of damage physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, those are also cases where the, the co-parenting isn't really going to work and we really have to pivot to a parallel parenting, which is much more rigid, much more, uh, the, the uh, checks and balances are much greater. So in forward thinking, is this something, Jessica, that you've been incorporating into agreements like social media usage? Is that something that maybe we should as mediators and lawyers be thinking that we should address during the process to get out ahead of it maybe? So Would it work? <laughs> conceptually, the idealistic little yeah. bit part of me of left that's still idealistic would say, yes, yes. Um, but there's enforcement mechanisms, right? Right. So if you have, you are not divorcing a different person than the person you married. Mm -hmm. And you are not going to have a different person 10 years from now. So if you married someone who acts, um, like as Pam was saying, an immature 14-year-old during the marriage, during the divorce, you are not going to change their behavior. So um, it, as an attorney, I really like to not set up false expectations. And sometimes people feel if it's written down, if they agree to it, mm -hmm. I can do something about this. Yeah. Maybe really you probably can't. And if you did, it would cost a lot of money. And then I would say to you, you should probably go back to therapy to learn how to deal with this person. Yeah. If you ever left, because they're not changing. It would be interesting to see an addition of responsible social media usage in divorce as part of the co-parenting class. Just put something out there. And we can we invent make, that. We can make invent that. Well, we, you they have to go through it anyway. Well, you can't do with photos, right? So yeah. with photos, something with yeah. children. You know, photos. No children photos. But that's easy, right? See, because I got you a can question about them. photos. Like what from therapy perspective? Yeah. I'll get on Facebook, hey, 10 years ago, there's a picture like my kid, and it's cool because he's young, and I look at it, and there's a memory. If you were married for, uh, for 
15 years, you know, however long Facebook is around. I'm sure people aren't really worried about, like, things they put on MySpace at this point. <laughs> but if you've got your Facebook, if you don't delete the old pictures and go through and get rid of that, then, boom, you're over something. And I guess it could be a trigger. I guess it could Absolutely. be, like, something. I think it's not so did she go back and, like get rid of all that should you get rid of that profile and start a new one like what do you think from a therapy perspective i just think it's not allowing people to have closure especially that like time hop thing that's happening mm. right like oh this thing happened eight years ago right. and then it pops up and then you have a you have a bodily I would guess if, like wedding pictures popped up that would be it. really bad right when you're getting over a divorce i think there should be a cleansing process just like everything else you clean your house you clean your stuff out you Maybe go through your Facebook. Clean out your social media. People used to have yeah. bonfires, yeah. right, of all their ex's right. stuff. Yeah. So Stella got a, a Facebook plug-in. Yeah. 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 Got to be split-ready pass erasure. Yeah. We'll come up with something <laughs> like that. Well, we were joking that the box should come with a, a thing of wood. An anal yeah. flame. Or yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Awesome segment. Um, and great advice. Again, you're listening to Split Ready, or Getting Split Ready, sponsored by Divorce Mortgage Pro. Financing a home. During a divorce can be challenging. Mistakes can cost money, and in the worst cases, they can even kill a deal. This is why you need a Divorce Mortgage Pro on your side. Divorce Mortgage Pros have the experience and training to help navigate the challenges of divorce mortgage lending and to ensure that you keep a roof over your head. Divorce Mortgage Pro is a member of the Split Ready Divorce Pro Network, the premier place to find professionals for your Split Ready team. Check out Divorce Mortgage Pro and the other divorce pros at SplitReady.com. Click the Build Your team build your team tab i still need glasses i really do build your team tab where you can see all the different split ready pros so on to pre-divorce counseling Mm. and i think all the other stuff we're talking about today this is a great a great weird place to start right probably should have started with it but this all gives a context well uh it it is really really um it's neat because the pre-divorce counseling has so much to do with, again, beginning with the end in mind. What is it this is going to look like? And what is it that, how, what do I want my story to be about how I conducted myself and what that looked like? Settlement aside and, and details aside from an emotional standpoint. So when I was thinking about this and preparing, I, I was thinking, okay, I think we maybe go back to why do people marry? Why, why are we even doing this when the divorce rate is this high and second marriages have an even more abysmal uh, rate? And, oh, my gosh, what about the people who marry their spouse that they divorced and get remarried? So there's... Mm-hmm. That, was our, know, that was our... Yeah, that number seemed high, though. You said 6%. I, I questioned that statistic, but I, I didn't you. come up with the statistic. <laughs> I, had to, I mean, I Google those. I Google those. Well, well, someone called, Google, someone called me out sure. on that. They, were like, they called me out on the Democrat and Republican one. They were that somehow posting that little piece of trivia became a political debate. But I digress. But we digress, yes. So we marry. I think we marry because we want to be loved. We want to be happy. We want to feel fulfilled. And we want security. And that requires each person to have an appropriate level of maturity, flexibility, communication, and a willingness to compromise and trust building. Now we fast forward to when there is a conflict, there is a a tension, there's a rub, and pretty soon all of that, uh, you know, the first six months, I know the, the, uh, the, scans the pet scans look like an insane person so we get those analogies like i'm crazy in love and and i'm insanely jealous and and that's very real (laughs) those those things do light up the the pet scans like that in the brain but the 
when it's good, it's all good. And it's when the disagreements arise that the connectedness, which is why we marry, I think, the connectedness is fractured and it's jeopardized. And it's then when we look at the course of a marriage and how those patterns of and those dynamics of conflict, how we fight, how we argue, how we disagree, how we come to understanding, how we reconcile and repair, if you will, how we do that. And much of the time, there aren't checks and balances along the way for that. So what we have is people who just get really, really good and get better and better because they're practicing it more and more of how to, in a, in a toxic cycle, work things I don't even know if it's out or work things through. I, I don't think that happens. So what, what pre-divorce counseling does is a lot of the really important stuff like get, get your health in order. My, my clients all have to get a physical. Uh, they, all, they all have to get a physical. I refer to a chiropractor. I make sure that they, they have a real clean mindfulness. Um, I often refer to colleagues that have expertise that I don't and really have them understand what their part is, not only in the demise of the relationship, because they had a part in it too, but then understanding how it is that they look to their spouse who they are divorcing to fill the needs that weren't filled along the way. So we're looking to the person that we married for the love, the happiness, the fulfillment, and the security. And then because emotions hijack logic, we regress to unhealthier reactions and end up feeling all the way through the divorce process, and sometimes, and I mean this in all love, <laughs> feel unloved, unheard, disrespected, unhappy, unfulfilled, and insecure with the attorney and with the spouse that they're divorcing. So the, the whole thing gets so blurred because what they started, what, what couples started out doing there isn't a pivot in the expectations of the divorce. So I, I really concentrate heavily on, are you really ready to do the divorce? That was, are, are you I really doing you smiling that? and nodding, and I thought that's awesome. So yeah. people come to you because they think they've got to lawyer up, right? That's what I you got to lawyer up. you got to you know, protect your best interest. When people come to you, how often do you say, no, you really need to go through this, this first because many reasons. I'm actually quite happy to say to someone, you're not ready. Mm -hmm. And um, typically the person who comes in who's not ready is really hyper emotional and they're clearly looking for you to fix it. And mm. I can't fix it. I can fix a divorce, right? I can fix a judgment for dissolution of marriage. I can fix your child support. I can fix your maintenance if you're entitled to it, right? That's my job, but I can't fix you. Yeah. And if you're looking to me as an attorney to fix you or you're still really on the edge or you're just not there I tell them I just don't think you're there and if you need to or want to go speak to another attorney I will give you some referrals but you know maybe you should go to therapy maybe you should think about this um, you know maybe you shouldn't be making this decision two weeks after you've just given birth right <laughs> or your spouse has mm -hmm. just given birth and I right? love when you tell like I know there are stories behind every time you throw one of those out. You threw some stories out at that one meeting that we didn't get to. But I know that that's 
from experience, yeah. not from pulling out of thin air. Right. I mean, if you are in my office crying your eyes out because you cannot believe you got here and how could this happen, you are not ready. You are you even if you need out of that marriage because it's and I can see it's not going to right. I can see it's not going to survive from what you've told me. If you're not there, you can't do this process Mm -mm. and you Mm -mm. need to speak to a therapist, Um, you know, barring any sort of physical or or abuse situation. You need to speak to a therapist. And and if you can't get people speaking to a therapist and sometimes religion plays a role, speak to your rabbi, speak to your priest, Mm -hmm. speak to your minister. Do not speak to your family. Speak to someone. <laughs> right? Because you're in an you altered state. You're, yeah. you're in you're an altered judged. state. You you're not able that. to make the really important financial right. and uh, child raising decisions that you need to make. It's not that different than coming in after a trauma or altered to make those decisions. I think divorce is a grief process. Mm-hmm. And you have to go through those stages, which is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I think probably people even come to you and, and ask you to make the decision for them. Yes. They come to me and ask yeah. me to make the decision for them. And, I'm, and I say the same thing. Well, it's obviously you're not ready to make this decision. Let me tell you that it's a grief process. And a grief process is not linear, right? So they might come in and they say, oh, I'm so depressed. Okay, tell me how you feel in an hour, right? So mm-hmm. a grief process mm-hmm. goes like this. My biggest concern in a grief process is when it does hit that linear and they're just straight up depressed, that's what I worry. But if they're all over the place and their emotions are all over the place, then that's good. Then you're going through the process. It's also very, very common to for the client to project their needs and their expectations on the attorney. So I work really closely and ideally collaboratively and amicably with the attorney because you take a hit from the clients as well because if they're looking for the protector, they're looking for a, a person who's going to make the decision for them, those expectations and those roles are projected onto you and that causes a lot of tension in the relationship between what it is that you want to do for them and what they're expecting from you. And once those emotions get involved, that jeopardizes the relationship you have with them as well. It, it is, and it's, it is physically and emotionally mm-hmm. exhausting to deal with someone who is your client who's not there. And and hopefully you get it ahead of time, and, and hopefully they go to therapy once you spot it. Um, but I, I do have to say, and I've told many people, you're not ready. I think I can safely say most have come back if they're getting divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, they do tend to respect that because, you know, they're coming in, they're going to need to pay you money. There's always an expectation that an attorney is going to try to take advantage, right? Because that that's that person, you know, they're 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 the bad attorney, right? Terrible. They're gonna they're gonna take your money and they don't really care. And I don't think that's the experience for most attorneys who practice in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow we really try to care about the outcome for everybody, and you know. If you come back, I've, I've had someone who came back once a year for five years before she pulled the trigger. Wow. And it was truly amazing because by the time she pulled the trigger, I knew her, right? I knew all about her, ch- her, her child. I, I knew about her. I knew the history. And it became a very, very good relationship with her because we had had a built-up history. And the trust that she needed to finally get the divorce I knew she needed 
right, five years prior, but she wasn't ready. We had a we had a trust built up. Yeah. And so um, I, I don't think it's a bad thing for an attorney to say you're not ready. And I don't think it's a bad thing for an attorney to say you need to go to therapy. And I really don't think it's a bad thing for an attorney to withdraw from a case if your client isn't ready and is insisting on going forward because you do not have to be as an attorney or a therapist mm -hmm. um, part of someone self-destructing right and that ambivalence to the point of those stages of grief and uh, that occur in any loss and that that thinking it through is a necessary part of the process so once people understand it's not that you're delaying or that you're it that that ambivalence that thinking it through, the denial, the bargaining, all of those pieces are as important developmentally in getting through the process as, say, a child's developmental period. So it's, it's beneficial to have a name and to assign a, an experience, a physical experience mm -hmm. to it and to really process that through. So oftentimes therapy isn't just one modality either. So when we talk about therapies, you can hear that we do a lot of collaboration and cross-referring do different things and they're all important and they all have a role. I would say um, some clients that do have that experience and lawyer up really fast or whatever you want to say um, have a really traumatic experience doing that if they're not ready. I'd say the opposite is true than the client that waits, you know, five years and, you know, some, sometimes, um, sometimes the people that pull the trigger really fast have a really awful post-divorce. What do you do though in the case where one person is ready, one person is driving the train, one person is ready for the divorce, has been for years, and the other person is absolutely nowhere near ready, but is getting dragged along in the process because there's two people involved, there's two people who are part of this. What do you do then? I mean, then there has to be some reality check and, it ha and somebody has to say to them, you know, looks like this thing is gonna happen whether you like it to or not. So it's time for you to get some help and um, do all the self-care that we just talked about, go to therapy, and really process this thing that's gonna happen. Because if somebody's driving the train, they're driving the train, and, and that's it. Is it the same from the legal side, kind of that tough love conversation? Yeah, you do. You very much have the tough love conversation, but on the opposite side, for the person who's been gone for four years, yeah, and they're already in a relationship, and they have moved on, and, and they can't understand why the other person hasn't, um, it is, also really extremely important to tell that person and to make sure they understand as many times as you can because they'll understand for a minute until something kind of happens um, which is understandable is that the divorce will only go or be as easy as the slowest person mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. slowest person is the person who is dragging their feet in this situation um, because they they don't they don't want to get divorced or they're not there and so as much as you really have to have the tough love conversation with the person who, who does need to catch up for, for their own sanity and, and, and mental health sake, you also do have to say to the person who's been gone for ages, you know, this is new to this person. You, you need to sometimes just let them have the time that they need. And, and that's a, a similarly difficult conversation yeah. to have. And again, therapists are very good to bring in and help with this because there's some point in everyone's life where they have been left behind Mm -hmm. And therapists are really good at bringing that out. Yeah. I have a question. You know, we talk sometimes about how to tell people you're getting divorced and all these ways to kind of roll something out. What advice, and, and I think actually all our panelists could give, let's say people are thinking about getting divorced and one wants to go to therapy 
with the intent of either as couples therapy or pre-divorce therapy or however it turns out, how do they approach that constructively with their spouse who may not know how they feel? Like, how do they bring them into that so that it's, it's the therapy works? I mean, I've even had people like schedule a couple sessions um, to tell their spouse that they want to get divorced. So they do it in there with you. They do you. it in the session. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fear. That <laughs> no, I would. I, I, how I'm do you plan for that? that? I'm not like, saying that that's is the that thing. something when that happens? You, how do you plan for that? Or is it? Are there people who are really good at that? Or highly like, skilled? No, you got to use highly this therapist. Skilled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think some I people need that like middle person or that safe space or I don't know. It happens more often than you think. I think in terms of pre-divorce planning, we have to get back to that conversation of making therapy and coaching a preventative or a uh, a checkpoint in you know things are tough or we're not communicating or we don't feel connected whatever this it's probably not going to hurt to go right you're not going to make your relationship worse or this is going to be the therapy appointment that leads to your divorce if anything you're going to get benefit of it and changing that dialogue i think is the big takeaway from this how do we make that so that it's not a stigma and well, and, and there are biases, to, to be true. There there are biases that the therapist is going to take aside or or the therapist is going to have, in fact, a bias. And quite honestly, we we don't have skin in the game like that. That is not what we're there for. We're, we're highly trained. Uh, the people who do collaborative work in particular, are we're all trained at the highest level. We're credentialed nationally at the highest level of everything that we do. And so when we're, we know how, when we're blindsided, we know how to handle that. We know when people don't, um, aren't ready to hear what it is that needs to be heard, that's where the pre-divorce counseling is helpful because it's also where the attorney, in collaboration with the attorney, the attorney, I can send the person over and say, you know what, please walk this person through the divorce process so that they're clear on this is what it's going to look like. People aren't afraid of change. That, that, is, that, that has not been true for decades, and I'm here to, to eliminate that right now. We're not afraid of change. We're, afraid, we're, we're, we're concerned about the ambiguity. Once the, there's a known entity about this is the process, this is the road, this is what the legal system does and doesn't care about, this is what it is that these different roles and responsibilities are with really clear supporting boundaries where we'll take care of you, but we're also going to take care of the issue. That then really brings a person into cooperation and eases the resistance or the hesitation because there is a way. You know, we have the answer, of course. Someone doesn't know the steps of divorce. Where can they go? Splitready.com, of course. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So thanks. Great guests. Thank you for listening to the Getting Split Ready podcast. And if you or someone you know is going through or thinking about a divorce, check out our website, splitready.com. Take our assessment to determine your DRQ, divorce readiness quotient. I'm just kidding. That's not a real thing. Um, but you can get through your divorce <laughs> yes. with your finances, yeah, integrity, like insanity <laughs> intact. We can help you. Don't forget to like us on social media, which we said, of course, was the devil today. But like our Facebook, follow us on LinkedIn. Our podcasts come out every week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on YouTube and Facebook. I think and you can still like us, even if you're not going through a divorce. That's Let's exactly get rid of that right. stigma, too. Yes, somebody knows someone going I've through a divorce. You. Thank you. So yes. thanks yeah. so much, guests, really. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.